Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, stream us on Spotify, or subscribe to us on YouTube. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. That's right. And also don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and now TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. And we have a super duper fun show today. Really excited to have a conversation about the Beatles fashion. One of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is reading new Beatles books, and this was a great one. So today we're welcoming Deirdre Kelly to the show. Deirdre has a new book out called Fashioning the Beatles, The Looks That Shook the World. This book examines the Beatles' revolutionary fashion choices over the years and analyzes the massive impact it had and continues to have to this day. Yeah, and also the people that influenced them. Like, I'm such a nerd for 60s fashion, like Carnaby Street and the King's Road and Chelsea and Mary Quant and John Stephen and all of those really big names that were not only influenced by the Beatles, but influences on them. So, yeah, it's really fun. It's a great topic. Yeah, I, I cannot forget that your pandemic project was making Mary Quant patterns for yourself. Yes. Yeah. The if anybody's out there is a sewist. So um the BNA had a great Mary Quant exhibit in it was like late 2019 and into 2020. And I actually flew to London specifically to see it. But on the VNA website, there's a free Mary Quant pattern that you can download and make your own Mary Quant inspired dresses. So yeah, I made at least one or two of them. And they're really fun. You can mix and match the sleeves and the collars, but they're super cool. So check that out. Just Google, you know, whatever, be a Mary Quant pattern. And uh, yeah, you can make your own Mary Quant dress. So a little bit about Deirdre. Deirdre is a Canadian journalist, author, and arts critic. She is a best-selling author of other nonfiction books, including Paris Times 8 and Ballerina, Sex, Scandal, and Suffering Behind the Symbol of Perfection. Ooh. The ballerina book took a number one spot on a top 10 list of the world's best ballet books, according to The Guardian newspaper in 2021. And between 1985 and 2017, she was a staff writer at the Globe and Mail, which is Toronto's flagship newspaper. There, she was an award-winning dance critic, pop music reviewer, and fashion reporter. In 2017, she was appointed editor and principal writer of the York University magazine, and she's still currently there. She's also been published in Marie Claire in London, Elle in New York, and Vogue in Australia. And she's a writer for the arts e-zine, Critics at Large in Toronto. So very busy writer. And welcome, Deirdre. Hi. We're so excited to have you here. We both loved fashioning the Beatles. Just to start off, tell us a little bit about your connection to the Beatles and what motivated you to write a book about this. I mean, fashion is so intertwined in the Beatles story, obviously, but I don't know if there's ever been a book of this kind written that focuses only on the fashion aspect. So just to start, what's my connection to the Beatles? It's like right there from the beginning of my life, practically. I was born to young parents who are from the UK, one from Ireland, the other from Scotland, both of whom 
lived in London, England, which is where my mother colorfully likes to say I was conceived. And they both <laughs> went to clubs and, and, and knew sort of that whole burgeoning scene. So in other words, when they emigrated to Canada, they brought with them actually very little, save for a whole bunch of records. And I grew up on those records. And I grew up with a love of pop music, rock music. And I can tell you that I have a very vivid early memory of being yanked out of bed. So yes, I'm giving my age away, but I was alive and uh, old enough to remember this, being yanked out of bed as a young toddler, basically, and dangled in front of the television set when the Beatles made their premiere performance on the Ed Sullivan show. Coming up now, February 9, 1964, the anniversary date. Mm. And uh, so I vividly remember that. So that's pre-literate times, you know, but just that memory and that it was impactful. And I remember my parents telling me that I was to remember this moment. And then I grew up with their music, of course. And as I've said to others who've asked me, why did I write this book? It is quite simply, I am Beatles obsessed. And uh, my dear mother, Ashley, just recently passed away and I was going through her things, which included a lot of my things. And I can tell you that I forgot about how much I was doing, but I was doing artwork, you know, about the Beatles. I was doing book reports on the Beatles. I was doing cartoons about the Beatles. I was doing graffiti on my notebooks about the Beatles. So they always were there. So going ahead now to the other question you ask, you know, which is true, there's very little out there on the Beatles and their fashion. And I never thought I would ever be able to write a book on my favorite band as much as I love them, just simply because I didn't think there was anything new to say. As you are both well aware, there's a zillion words I'd like to say spilled on this group. There's documentary film, there's their own feature film, there's the Beatles in their own words, you know, in the anthology. What could I say that hasn't been said before? That was the big question, but that wasn't what was motivating me when I went to actually create this book. At the beginning, I was just trying to do a fashion book. I was a staff writer at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada, where I had been a critic in the art section for a long time. And my editor at one point wanted to transition me to the fashion section. So um, this was this is uh, common in newspapers. Often you're voluntold type of thing. <laughs> and um, I have to say, I enjoyed doing it. And I wanted to solidify the experience I was getting and the knowledge I was gaining because my paper quite uh, generously, I want to really emphasize, sent me to Paris and New York and Milan. So I was learning fashion, literally front row at the most fabled runway shows and venues and meeting designers and going into atelier. So I wanted to do a book that allowed my experience as a newspaper person, you know, newsprint is easily discarded. And I wanted something that would anchor that experience, as they say. And I just couldn't find something new to say about fashion. Was pestering my husband in a way about, oh, I wish I could think of something, wish I could think of something. And without missing a beat, 
one day he just turned to me and said, I had it all wrong, that my next book should be on the Beatles. And he just said that out of the blue and, you know, with hands on hips and like, why? And he, and he just said the obvious because you're Beatles obsessed. Yes, I know. But what could I possibly say that hasn't been said before about them? And then because I wanted the last word on what I had already started the conversation, I said, uh, unless, of course, it was on their fashion. I meant that as a joke. And just as I said it, it was the proverbial epiphany moment. I couldn't believe it <laughs> that I it came out of my mouth because I saw it instantly as like, wait a minute, that's a good idea. And I really hoped and prayed that nobody had done it before. I found one book and that book to me was wanting. There were a lot of omissions. And as a Beatles fan, I could see errors of fact. And I felt that the door was wide open for me to maybe build on, if not improve on that one source that I had found and long way of answering your question, but that's how it came about. <laughs> yeah. It's such a cool untapped market for sure. And, you know, obviously their fashion was such a big part of their influence and became part of their legend. And one thing that I was really struck by in the book Obviously, there's a lot of great visuals and a lot of wonderful illustrations of the things you talk about. But I really liked how you were able to describe their clothing. And I imagine that was really challenging without a ton of visuals to describe exactly like the material and the colors. Was that a challenge for you writing the book? Well, thank you very much for highlighting that. I'm going to say, and I really do mean this modestly, and you're the first person to highlight that. Thank you again. Did just tell you I was a critic. Or I, am, I actually am still a critic. I specialize in dance. And you have to be very attuned to visual presentation when it's on stage. So I have decades of experience having to recreate on the page aspects of the visual in dance. and that actually put me in good stead when I was transitioned into fashion. I originally, I actually, you can believe it, said no to that assignment. And then, of course, the carrot was Paris, <laughs> France. And what what, sure. what idiot would refuse that? So, uh, and I didn't want to be an idiot. Anyway, once I got there, I was kind of like, oh, I actually can do this. Because again, it was movement which I know how to describe and recreate, as they say, into language. And it was also about fabric and form and color. So I want to, I guess, first time I'm saying this out loud is um, give credit actually to that editor who then had me trained in the analysis and reportage of fashion. It was a very detailed and painstaking process of really looking and comparing often outfits in different ways, making sure that I got the detail, making sure that I could recreate it for you, the reader. I wanted the Beatles to come alive on the page. And you mentioned that sometimes there are gaps in Beatles reportage over the years. There's very like rudimentary 
descriptions of the materials, but you really dive into more specific materials or the way they were put together. And that's really impressive to me. And like you say, like we don't have the luxury of seeing these things in the flesh all the time. Some of them are on exhibit, like the collarless jackets and that kind of thing. But John's beloved utilitarian Army Navy coat, for example, like, you know, we see it in photos, but I don't think it's ever been on exhibit. Do you mean the um, the trucker jacket that's on the cover of Rubber Soul? Yes. And was that the one you talk about being stolen at one point or was that oh, a no, jacket? No, that, that, that's a different one. That one was that kind of um, large stripe, different shades of blue jacket that I believe he got from boutiques on Carnaby Street and that he wore very often in 1965 and you see it in images sort of outtakes from help but you see it I think he wears it also very briefly in some of the scenes much to the chagrin if you remember that part uh, in the book of the uh, director and the costume designer because John would frequently insist on wearing his own favorite pieces of clothing right which went against the script type of thing because uh, then by showing up, they would have a break. He'd go put on his own jacket as opposed to what he had just been wearing when they went for a break. And so he would mess up continuity all the time. I was just so glad you called that out because that scene in A Hard Day's Night has bugged me for decades where he's in the cab and he's wearing his turtleneck in the one scene and then he's back to his oh, suit. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, yes. I finally have an explanation for why that's there. They just couldn't work around how stubborn he was. Yes. And all the Beatles were like that. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it was maybe only John who was guilty of that, <laughs> because as I do uh, argue in the book and now stand by, is that no one could tell the Beatles what to do, let alone what to wear, where to dress. So this was always his little acts of rebellion. You know, no one's going to tell him what to wear, even when it was required for a film. And that's such a good point, because in the book, you talk about, obviously, a big part of their image were the suits, you know, and mm -hmm. transitioning out of the leathers and into the suits. And there's such controversy. It's been reported over the years that John was like, I hate the suit, like, I would want to wear it. And then in the book, you mentioned, like, he's like, I would wear, you know, a garbage bag if, you know, it would make me money or make us more famous. And then you've got Paul saying, no, we all wanted to wear the suits and... There's definitely different stories over the years, but yeah, you're right. They would not have wanted to wear anything if it didn't suit them. Suit them. Sorry, pun. I know, pun there. I mean, I, I know I kept saying that too in my own book, going suit, suits them. No, 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 have, find, find another word. <laughs> but yeah, to that point, I took a lot of time about that because of course, and actually you want to give credit here to Mark Lewison. He was a great inspiration to me. I've met him, I interviewed him. For Critics at Large, uh, independent publication, where I, I still do some criticism and arts writing. And um, I've, of course, read Tune In. But it's from Lewis, and he told me himself, you know, that there's so many errors out there, so much mythology, uh, you know, swirling around the Beatles. And that one of the reasons it's taking him forever to write his own accounts of the band is that so much is taken as fact or gospel and it's repeated often enough that it becomes truth and it's about stopping and saying is that really true is that really true so this whole point that it's so often said 
oh, Brian Epstein pushed the Beatles into suits and he scrubbed the raw rock and roll persona right out of them, you know, by dressing them in suits. So there's some evidence and even John later, oh, you know, I sold out wearing those suits. But anyway, you have to go back and look at the record and the record stands that Brian himself is saying, oh, no, 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 no. I would never have even tried to push them in that direction. I made, merely made a suggestion and, and he even says, and I didn't want to change who they were. I just wanted to smarten it up a bit, right? So the hair stayed long, but it was just a little tidier. <laughs> and the Beatles, as you just mentioned, themselves willingly, gleefully went into suits. And what was really cool for me to discover is the extent to which the Beatles took charge of their own image every step of the way. They were even designing those suits, right? They went to the big established tailors, you know, masters of their own trade, and they came in with their own ideas all the time from the get go. So that is really important to know that the Beatles never were manipulated, never styled by anybody but themselves. I just thought it was so interesting throughout the book, that sense of them knowing what they wanted from an early age, them not conforming if they wanted to get the haircut that Astrid had, they're going to go do it, even though nobody else in, you know, that was very feminized. That wasn't something that you would do. And they did seem to have this unabashed joy to go into these high-end tailors and get their own ideas made into both streetwear and concert costumes. And I was wondering what you thought about Brian's influence on this, especially, you know, to me, it feels like it's that's almost a turning point where they were exposed to something new and what fashion could do for them beyond just wearing the suits. How do you think Brian influenced their fashion? Brian influenced them by first opening the door for them and showing them this new way towards a different future. They were quite literally in a cellar. When he met them, they, they were subterranean dwellers, you know, in this kind of dark, murky world of the Cavern Club, literally a former fruit and veg seller. And what he was doing was kind of busting open those doors, showing them the staircase. And you take these stairs, boys, you're going to go to literally a higher level. And then I'm going to get you not only out of the relative obscurity, say, of this small venue, but up into the brighter world of the new medium of television. And if you want to go there, you've got to dress a little bit more presentably because you're going to now perform to the mass, right? And the Beatles, I think they were appreciative of seeing this larger vista you know, for them, they had ambition. We all know that, like they were very ambitious. You know, it wasn't happenstance. Everything they did, they did quite deliberately. And even ultimately agreeing collectively to go with Brian, it was, I think, because he was presenting them with greater opportunities and maybe what he was doing was aligning himself with their own ambitions. He was a very posh dresser. I don't think that they felt that they needed to emulate that. 
though Brian introduced them to his own hairdresser and ultimately to his own tailor, Ben O'Dorn, who was there in Liverpool. He is also the one who gives them the idea of Dougie Millings. So he makes these suggestions, but the Beatles, they have to want to do it themselves. And they did want to do it themselves because they did want to, to quote, be the toppermost of the proppermost. And dressing the part was going to get them there. And they knew that not just at this juncture in their career, they knew that from the get-go. They themselves knew they weren't even the best in Liverpool at the time. You know, there were Mersey Beat bands a dozen. And the Beatles didn't yet play that well even. And as they say, they admitted that. They go to Hamburg, you know, we all know that story. Then they really hung their sound after hours upon hours upon hours <laughs> and months and weeks and weeks of um, relentless playing. But until then, how were they going to stand out? You know, and they formulated a visual presentation for themselves that was absolutely different from everybody else. And they had that in them all the way through. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you talk about in your book is even early on, the volume of clothes they had. Like, you know, I think it was George <laughs> who walked into a tailor and was like, I want 50 shirts, you know? And <laughs> that seems so like so many shirts. Yeah, I mean, the word clothes horse <laughs> doesn't quite cover it, but 100%, I'd say that that's what all of them were and what they had in common. I mentioned that in the book, that fashion was an early bond. They actually all got off on, on wearing clothes, buying clothes, they enjoyed it, you know, just as much as music. And um, I found that very revealing that they had such a glut of them. It's Ringo too, right? He, he's talking about going in and buying so many cufflinks and, and uh, colorful shirts. And what I find interesting um, after doing all my research is, is discovering how attached they were to all those clothes. We, we just talked about that striped um, chambray type jacket that John was wearing on the set of Help, for instance, and when it went missing, and it went missing because a fan stole it, thinking that a superstar like John Lennon, who has so many clothes, would never miss it. But John actually really, really missed it and became quite distraught to the point that the fan then gave it back. <laughs> And that right. was to me a very revealing anecdote because they were very attached to their clothes. Yes, they ac accumulated massive amounts of them, but they actually were very attached. I have another anecdote in the, in the, in the book that I thought was interesting. Speaking of John, when he comes to Toronto in 1969 en route to the bed-in, and it was a young Jerry Levitan eventually becomes the Emmy award-winning um, author and filmmaker of I Met the Walrus. So he meets John at this time. He's just a kid, kid, you know, want, wannabe reporter. He's banging on all the doors at the hotel. Cleaning lady, you know, takes pity, points him in the right direction, knocks on the door. Uh, scram kid is what everybody else was saying, but he blurts out, I want to I want to talk to John about peace. John hears that, let, let the lad in. And uh, Levitan does the interview. And at one point, John, after it was done, asked him to lend him a hand. And it was to hoist up this massive trunk 
off the hotel floor onto the bed. And at this time, John is only wearing all white and all black. He looks like he's completely minimal in his outfits, right? But Jerry saw for himself that the trunk once opened was packed to the gills with clothing. That just stuck with me. What the hell? What was he doing? He wasn't wearing all these things. There's no visual evidence of him wearing this. He's all, as you say, it's almost wearing all the same things all the time. And then it dawned on me that it's kind of talismanic to these clothes to them. Like, especially for John, there's this real attachment to the clothing. It's, it's an extension of the personality. And it definitely is a manifestation of the artistry and all the things that the Beatles represent, right? Uh, change, progress, anti-conformism, all these things. It was just... Um, one way that they were able to allow themselves to see how meaningful it was to them. It really struck me, too, that John had a room just for his clothing at the Dakota. According to Jerry, dear Jerry Levitan here in Toronto, he is now friends with the family. He has seen that room. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't think Jerry's lying to me. He's been to the Dakota. He has seen it almost like an apartment and a room, gosh. And they, I want to say it's almost like its own apartment. And those are all John's own clothes. And we know I wrote that at the very end, right, about Paul. So you, right. you know, a lot of the clothing has gone on auction and it is collected. I said some become like fine art collectibles now, right? The sole exception is clothing by Paul McCartney. Whenever an item of clothing goes on the block that belonged to McCartney and McCartney finds out about it, he... Uh, yanks it from the auction houses and threatens the lawsuit because generally the item of clothing had been stolen by a fan in the day. And again, what the anecdote said to me is that how attached the Beatles are to their clothing. And here's a a very current example of it. Right. And I think about Paul wearing the jacket that he wore to the Hard Day's Night premiere to the premiere eight days a week in London. And he still fits into it. God bless him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that, that vegetarian diet did wonders for the waistline yes. exactly and Ringo too <laughs> right well Ringo looks incredible yes, uh, right into sure his 80s and is honed uh, you know he's got a different look now because we we know that seeing um Peter Jackson's wonderful get back uh you know restoration of the film and and we got to see the clothing really move and how the Beatles always were changing the look and just looked incredible, right? I don't know about what you were thinking when you were watching that, but I, all my oh, eyes yeah. were there. But look at Ringo, who was still coming in like a dandy from, you know, the King's Road, right? He was still wearing the frilly shirt and the stripes and the colors and very smart. I, I thought he looked fantastic. Remember that whole lime green suit? <laughs> you know, yeah. everything was oh, just yeah. off the screen. But these days, I mean, he's really honed a different look. Like it's almost almost like a signature black, right? He's gone back to Beatles mm-hmm. black and it's had to toe that, but uh, it suits him so much. And he just looks the very personification of cool. Yeah. And you make the, I think the arguments towards the end of the book that Ringo has been sort of the, the common denominator of the fashion, you know, he sort of held that up over the years, even into the seventies. Yeah. I love that. Um, I got quite a few wonderful interviews for this book. And one of them was with Andrew Luke Oldham, 
formerly right. the manager or early manager of the Rolling Stones and the one who was responsible for their look, which he told me was created as an anti-Beatles look, right? Because he had worked for Mary Quant, which I didn't know before I did this research, and also very briefly with Brian Epstein. So he saw the, the Beatles juggernaut type of thing as it was happening in the um, early years of Beatlemania. And so he determined to go the other way with the stones. So it was all a formula, basically, and the Beatles being the standard that you went against in order to make a difference. So that was very interesting. But to get back to why I just brought him up is that he said to me that in his opinion, that Ringo has won the Beatles style sweepstakes. I love that line. And by the way, it, it's not just all the other things I said about Oldham, you know, being with Brian Epstein at the beginning and then with the Stones, but also Oldham was known himself as a diehard clothes horse. You should read his bio if you haven't read it yet called Stoned. And it's so much about clothing and mod and, and the looks. And he was, he was just drooling when he would meet the Beatles themselves because he truly admired their clothing choices as well as their music, of course, and their overall style. So I thought that that was coming from a really good source. Yeah, for sure. And I want to talk a little bit to touch on, you know, you mentioned Mary Quant, but there are so many great boutiques and designers mentioned in the book. And one thing I wanted to mention, I want to know if it's intentional, the font of the book title, it reminds me of the Biba font. Was that intentional? Gosh, I would love to take credit for it, but I think, <laughs> yes, there, you know, I, I had to hire, uh, we had to hire, I should say, the publisher, so the, gotta give a shout out, Sutherland House Books, independent Canadian press based here in Toronto. They really took that over. I, of course, would have made suggestions. I, of course, was sending hundreds <laughs> of photos and ideas, but the young designer that uh, who ultimately did the cover, uh, that was that was uh, her idea. Yeah, I was very impressed by that. So kudos to her. It's a beautiful book. So a couple of other designers, you know, obviously Mary Quant goes without saying, but one of the less heralded people was really Pierre Cardin with the collar yeah. suits and the way that even in the early days, you know, you talk about Astrid making these knockoff Cardin like pieces for the Beatles and really that brought in a lot of the androgyny because Cardan was primarily a women's designer at first. I'm really glad you brought him up. He is fascinating. And I had to learn a little bit more about him in, in the course of researching this book because you are absolutely right. He was a woman's wear designer at first, tutored <laughs> by none other than Christian Dior. You can't mm, get no. any more female fashion than that for the 20th century. What is fascinating about Pierre Cardin is that he self-identified as a fashion revolutionary. He is one of the first to cross the floor, so to speak, into menswear right at the dawn of the 60s. And he is responsible for the first ever menswear fashion show on a Paris catwalk. He did. Wow. And he also created for that fashion show this suit, aka the collarless suit, 
but right. he called it the cylinder suit. Cylinder should be evoking ideas of industrial age, of techno forward drive, you know, it's pushing, it's going to drill through borders and boundaries. And so that was quite intentional on his part, calling it that, and also trying to come up with ways that were completely new for men. So he did away with the lapel. He did away with the collar. He also, what was fascinating about the cylinder suit, he created in two types of fabric, one of them being corduroy. Oh, wow. We take corduroy today so for granted. It is so common. I mean, I grew up wearing it. You wore it all the time and you're wearing it today. It's just all part of our closets, you know? Mm -hmm. But when Pierre Cardin did his, as I said, this was couture, right? It was for a Paris catwalk, a men's suit in corduroy. That itself was radical chic. It was revolutionary in that corduroy at that time was not a fashionable fabric at all. It was for the working class. It was a sturdy fabric in England. It was known as Manchester cloth, made in the mills of Manchester for not Lady Chatterley's husband, but her lover, you know, the gardener. <laughs> and, and, right. and then in France, it was worn by people in the factories. And so he was wanting to create an egalitarian, which is another way of maybe approaching the androgyny. You're going towards a, a kind of equal footing in society. So yes, between men and women, but also between the classes. And this is very important in the 60s, because if you look at that decade from a sociological point of view, there's so much eruption happening, right? Among mm -hmm. the races, right, the among the classes. Yeah. And the Beatles themselves very much epitomize that revolution in society too, right? So what's really interesting about them is not only do they gravitate toward that colorless suit, eventually they don't take it on right away in 60s. It kind of trickles down as everything does when it's on a fashion catwalk, right? That uh, On the haute couture, if it's going to be popular, it trickles down into the mainstream. So here we are, late 62, and Paul McCartney goes over to Shaftesbury Avenue in London and picks up a replica of Cardin jacket, colorless jacket at Cecil G and brings it over to Old Compton Road to Dougie Millings, a.k.a. Taylor to the Stars, and says, this is what we want. Do us something like this. But again, it was Beatlefied, <laughs> as I say, um, to make it distinctly their own. But interestingly is that the Beatles, too, had it made out of corduroy. And uh, this was them wanting to assert their, I'd say, anti-establishment credentials. And even though it was a bespoke garment, you know, they always introduced elements of the subversive in even the most polished of clothes. That's so interesting to hear from this vantage point, because I look at it like, oh, that's a that's a really cool jacket. He looks amazing in it. But to really understand the sociological and the cultural implications behind the choices that they made, that's a whole new dimension. I think another theme running through the book and through the Beatles in their fashion is how they were so open to androgyny, to female-led clothing, to things that were popular in the queer community, but maybe not popular in traditional masculinity, which is amazing because of 
where they grew up in a very heteronormative and sexist culture in 1950s Northern England. How do you think they got there being where they were from? You know? mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent question. I did want to make sure that I mentioned that just briefly, you know, in that 1964 chapter, especially is where I get into it more that, you know, in their real lives, they were just what you said. They, they were from that sexist background and they, especially we know that of Paul and John, because uh, that's been well documented, how they were almost tyrannical with their girlfriends, right? Mm -hmm. Demanding how they should be and how they should look. Even when they're brunettes, they all had to bleach their hair to look like Bardot, their favorite pinup at the time. But in their mode of dress and in their public persona, they were a lot more liberated. And I've thought about this, of course, and I think it is because they were super confident. They were hetero males for sure, but so assured of their sexuality and their identity that I don't think they were threatened at all by the feminine or by any other tendencies, say, that were just then percolating in the culture. I wanted to talk a lot in my book about the 50s. In fact, actually, that chapter was removed. <laughs> That's a whole other story. I wrote it after I did a lot of my research because these trends, let's say that androgyny trend that we're getting into right now, that we might identify with as strongly 1960s, was actually starting to manifest itself in the late 50s by the likes of somebody like Bill Green, who had at first a mail order fashion business because he was making very brief briefs for bodybuilders which was a bit of a, um, I guess, a front too for what would be called a gay clientele. And he had a photography studio. He was photographing bodybuilders. He had Sean Connery, then Mr. Scotland, as one of his models. And this was attracting the attention, of course, of the gay community that was then extremely underground. But then Heterosexual men started to get wind of it because the clothing looked really happening. And women liked how men looked in these body conscious clothes. And so were encouraging their boyfriends, for instance, to go shop at Bill Green, who by this time has opened a retail location for his, I guess you'd say, body conscious male fashions. One of his first employees was uh, the Glaswegian, John Stevens, who right. learned all he needed to know, like in five minutes, and then quit Bill Green and then opened up his own establishment on what was then a Soho backwater known as Carnaby Street. And so you get these, um, I guess you call it peekaboo clothing. Uh, it is quite literal because they're taking the waistbands off trousers at this time in order to pull them down, give a glimpse of the pubic line in men's clothing, this birth of hipsters. And this becomes very hip and again, very, um, I guess you call it recherche, right? It was, it was against the norm, which 
when you're young and you're wanting to dress differently, um, these kinds of things are very attractive. So while the Beatles weren't anywhere near Carnaby Street as they were coming of age, they were aware, I'd say, or let's say open to some of these new influences that were in a way underground fashion influences. There's a really interesting story about George Harrison being in Liverpool around this time. And he's wearing these, I guess you'd say, revealing shirts that were sold at the likes of Carnaby Street, but he's wearing it in Liverpool. So he's gotten his hands out on it and must have, again, become a mass fashion staple. And he's catching the attention of a poet like Royston Ellis, you know, who's very counterculture because George at that time was also dressing to be different. And all the Beatles at that time were identifying themselves with the anti-establishment movement. And they were doing that in their clothing, even if it was supporting controversy by looking like it was women's wear or even gay wear. They just wanted to assert themselves as different from what was going on. I was impressed too with how how fashion forward George was from such mm. an early age. I loved his top tip about making yourself a pair of hipster jeans. Yeah, isn't it interesting? I actually deliberately opened the book with George because that was, again, revealing for me through all the research is to find out that the youngest Beatle was actually the most fashion forward in terms of introducing new ideas with a kind of intrepidness, right? He's the first one to get the leather jacket, for instance, in Hamburg. He's the first one to wear the pointy toe boots. In the day, they were cowboy boots in Hamburg, and then they evolved into the Cuban heel boots that we all know as beetle boots later on. But it was little George always coming up with a brazen new way of dressing. And then the other Beatles definitely followed suit. And that's the story of throughout, right, with them is that they were turned on by each other. Mm-hmm. They, they took inspiration from each other, not necessarily from the catwalk or what was in the fashion magazines at all. In fact, I think that that was the uh, say recipe of their unique style is that they didn't feel a need to cleave to what was in style at all. They wore what pleased them, even if it wasn't in fashion. And again, that could be emphasizing too that androgyny tendency in them is that if they liked it, they wore it and be damned to the critics. Right. And, you know, in the mid 60s, we really see that sort of come to fruition when they sort of start deviating from their group homogenous styles. And like you say, like really personalize what they're wearing, like John with his beloved jacket and help. And obviously into late 66 into 67, they really changed their look a lot, which not all fans loved. You know, (laughs) there's the infamous clip on American Bandstand where they play the video for Strawberry Fields Forever and the audience just appalled. They hate the mustaches. They hate the look. (laughs) It's just so funny. And I imagine that kind of coincides with their experimentation with drugs. How do you think that affected that such a transition period in their fashion? I think that the uh, substances 
lack of a better word, that they were ingesting all the way through their career had major impact on not just their music making, but their headspace, right? Mm -hmm. They quite literally referred to LSD as opening the consciousness and making them see and think in new ways. And they were absolutely all for that because they were curious men, all of them. They never wanted to stand still. They wanted to go forward and sometimes to places that weren't already known. And their curiosity, their engagement, let's say, with mind-altering substances, I think was very much reflected in their clothing at the time. If you recall, I quote one of their tailors from the appropriately named Granny Takes a Trip, a critique uh, they were all frequenting as of 1966. And by the way, Beatles fans will know the clothing from Granny Takes a Trip is um, the Paisley shirts worn on the back cover of Revolver or seen on the back cover a Revolver, for instance. Mm -hmm. And anyway, uh, the uh, tailor told me that purple became their color of choice at this time because it was what they were seeing on their trips. And the Beatles, I think, are no different from what's happening in the culture among people who are dropping acid. They want to dress in these new ways that reflect the new ways they're living and seeing and being. And the more outlandish in a way, the better. So I think it did have a definite influence on them. And you also see it maybe the precursor to the acid days and the color is um, the mm -hmm. dope taking days of help in particular. And there you see, I think um, there's more of an ease in some of the ways that they dress. There's a real mix of British and American styles too. And the Indian styles, the hashish styles, you might mm -hmm. want to call them. They're creeping in. So I'd say that that in itself could be maybe somebody has already written that drugs and the Beatles. You know, it's it's quite impactful. And I found it fascinating. And I wasn't at all judgy about it because it, <laughs> it was definitely a conduit to their artistic evolution. Yeah, And I guess side by side, as they experimented with different types of substance and the fashion evolved, they so quickly put away what they were wearing before. You never saw those collarless suits on them again, except for in that one jestful callback in a video later. That leads into a chapter that focused on the Apple Boutique, which I thought was so interesting to hear a story of what happened when the Beatles tried to make their style applicable to the masses. Yeah, it's um, one of the first flops. I'd say that's the flop people should focus on as opposed to Magical Mystery Tour, which I don't consider, <laughs> uh, you know, a flop at all. I think that that was very expanding for them artistically. But absolutely, the Beatles never wanted to be yesterday's men. And so they would not allow themselves to become mired in convention in any sense or form, including clothing they themselves made popular, you know, as soon as they created inadvertently a trend, because they certainly didn't set out to become their era's greatest trendsetters, 
but they just did become that because they were authentic and genuinely cool and people wanted to emulate them and be just like their idols and fashion manufacturers wanted to tap into the greatest thing in pop culture at the time, right? There's all these various reasons as to why they were so celebrated for being great stylists in their dress. But yeah, they just didn't want to be like anybody else. And I mentioned that 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 was a motivation from the very beginning. How would they stand out in a crowd? And so they were constantly moving forward and evolving. When they create Apple Boutique, which by the way, fashion, so again, it was so significant to the Beatles story because fashion was the very first manifestation of their own Apple business, right? They had this idea that, well, everybody likes to dress like us. So let's just do it. Let's create funky clothes that other people will want to wear because we wear them. It became, however, problematic. And I think mainly because fashion itself does change very quickly. And so when the Beatles got the idea, I don't think they appreciated that they had to already be forecasting <laughs> ahead. You know, they couldn't even see where themselves were going because by the time the Apple Boutique actually gets up and running, they're not wearing that hippie-esque clothing that they get the fool to make for the boutique, right? They've moved on already. And so had fashion moved on. So that by the time these, I called it oak hippie reds were in the shops, the Beatles for the first time ever were a little bit, you know, a beat behind what was happening in the culture. And as well, there were other problems, right? They were astronomically expensive because of the uh, way the fool was putting silk labels that were more expensive than, than the fabrics being used in these clothing. There was rampant shoplifting, so nobody mm. was making any money. And I think the fool did fool them, um, <laughs> which was sad because there was a lot of innovation there. And you see that innovation before the boutique in a way really gathers steam because you can see some of the clothing by the fool in the 67 period when they're making a magical mystery tour, for instance, that whole I am the walrus segment, you know, right. it's so bedazzling basically because of the clothing made by the fool. So it's not that they always made things that weren't impressive. It was extremely impressive, but it becomes, as they say, I think dated by the time it gets up and running. And the Beatles themselves, they called it out as we weren't businessmen, but I think it was also that they weren't, fashion designers. And as they say, fashion has its own, I guess, algorithm. You have to be thinking ahead. And uh, they just hadn't put their head into that. They and entrusted maybe the wrong people. Right. And you have to be specific about what you're doing when you're a fashion designer. You need to be thinking about the trends and, and the world. And they kind of happened into fashion. They set trends because yeah. they picked what they liked, not necessarily because they were following trends and looking ahead to what people might like in a year or two years from now. They weren't thinking about that at all. Absolutely right. And that's what I think makes them fascinating to look at as examples or exemplars, let's say, of fashion of not only of their time, but a fashion that has endured, you know, and continues to influence the culture is because that they just had their own way just like with their music, you know, nobody can replicate what they did. They still can't. 
And I, even me trying to analyze it, why is this fascinating? And I think it's because it's a bit of a potpourri, you know, there are all these different influences. They're open to so many ideas, including what's happening among them as mates and fellow artists, but also they're very open to what's going on in the culture at large. I think also it's their mindset was quite cosmopolitan. They weren't restrictive, even though I think we did talk about that, right? They come from a northern land where there were certain conventions at play and they all inherited those. Mm. But they were quite willing to go in new places and in new directions, both with their music and in their visual style. I wanted to just backtrack for a quick second, uh, Deirdre, because you mentioned the fool and the labels. And I know you mentioned in the book as well. And every once in a while, there's a piece of Apple clothing that comes up on eBay. But what's really expensive and what's really desired are those labels. And those by themselves come up on eBay sometimes and they go for just buku bucks. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that the labels were separated from the clothing. It's so funny. I don't know if they were, you know, dead stock that weren't sewn into the clothing or if they somehow survived in the clothing didn't, but I always thought that was so interesting and they're beautiful labels. Very cool. I um, haven't seen the full clothing up close, but I know a collector actually made, I want to say friends. I am quite fond of a lot of people that I met in the course of this research, but I did befriend a collector in England And in fact, he was responsible for putting me in touch with Marike Koger of The Fool. And I did an interview with her. She lives in uh, California now, by the way. And it was an email exchange. But he has reproduced images of this actual piece of clothing that he has. And he's just he just loves it. And he's like a connoisseur, you know, of cloth and cut in menswear. So I've been able to see fine detail in the lining as well. So as I mentioned, that they weren't all risible items of clothing. There was just some real treasures there. And yes, still today coveted by collectors. Totally. Yeah. And so to wrap up the Beatles career in terms of fashion, I always think of their period sort of 68 and later as a more demure style, maybe saving Ringo, because you know, we know from get back, Ringo's wearing these beautiful vibrant outfits well and george <laughs> yeah i was gonna say how can you not mention george oh my god like there were times i was watching that film i was falling off the chair running with my phone to the tv screen and you know taking pictures because i couldn't believe the dandy-esque way he was dressing that's true his frilly shirts and yeah the purple suit and you know you see that interview i did with anna Sui, who's a contemporary woman's work designer in new york oh i love anna Sui. And she's saying how she was dying looking at George in that purple ruffle front shirt oh and that God. candy stripe jacket which and suit, which I know was from what was uh, known as dandy fashions becomes apple tailoring that was made by Andrea Bustle, the mother of the famous ballerina Darcy Bustle, formerly Mrs. John Criddle. Often people have said that those clothes were made by Criddle, but he was the front person. It was Andrea who did all that work and I'm glad to give her that uh, spotlight. But yeah, so we see that um, Get Back 
film and I, like you until I sort of really examine. And as I said, I think that was the treat, you know, and the Peter Jackson replicating it. And you got to see it's like, yikes, look at how luscious it all is. Like I made that line there. I started thinking about it. I felt like they were just plundering their own Beatles closet and you were kind of getting greatest hits, right? You even got Beetle boots in there. You got the narrow Teddy boy pants. You got that rock and roll vibe from, from the Hamburg era. And then you got right up to the present day and Pepperland and dandy fashion. Yeah, I, I thought it was a real mix, not just demure, but I understand where you're going with that because I thought that too was almost like get back, get back to basic, you know, that they were going to get rid of all that sortorial flash. But I think it's more that it's John and Paul who might be more manifesting that aesthetic at this time, right? Mm-hmm. It, and, and, right. and I found it really interesting that I don't think it's accidental. It was um, absolutely coinciding with each of them finding new intimate partners. Right. And they were complimenting, I want to say mimicking, but they're more complimenting the style of their major ladies in their lives at this point. John with Yoko, it's much more minimal. It's much more, as I said, that black and white palette. And ditto with Paul. I mean, he was a huge dandy, you know, but he meets Linda, not a fashion plate. And he's suddenly wearing uh, flea market finds and growing that bushy beard. He still has a thing for the custom suit. We still see that that's what he's wearing on the rooftop. You know, it is a tailored Tommy Nutter suit. It just looks different because he's got the beard. (laughs) Yeah, right. And John actually finally understood the meaning of continuity clothes as he explained in Get Back, maybe a few films too late. But for the first part of Get Back, he was, you know, he deliberately wearing the, the same, same thing. old, same old every single day. <laughs> right. That's a good line. <laughs> I wish I had remembered that. That's good. You're right. What's so interesting, right, is that all of them are doing that. Sometimes I was imagining them that, well, how did they how did they live? Like, were they guy slobs? Like, you know, we, we all know those, um, you know, just drop your clothes on the floor, pick them up, wear them because they all had a tendency to wear similar pieces of clothing over and over and over and over again. But they would mix it up with different things. But you were you'd see that. But yeah, that John time, um, <laughs> it is very much the same day in, day out. And again, going to my fascination with Jerry Levitan telling me that John at this exact same time is traveling with tons of clothes that he's not putting on. Why? (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. And the clothing, correct me if I'm wrong, Deirdre, but you mentioned in the book that clothing in that trunk was very colorful, correct? Yes. Well, that's, again, I got that from an eyewitness. That's what he said. Isn't that, I just find it so interesting. That is so interesting. You know, we've, this has been such a fun time chatting with you. And I wanted to mention, you know, you end the book by talking about the Beatles influence. And I know you just touched on that a little bit in the current fashion. How do you think it manifests itself? I know you bring up, for example, BTS and their suits. And you just mentioned Anna Sui, who's one of my favorite designers currently. But yeah, how do you think it really kind of shows up today? There are direct homages, right? You've got designers like Tom Ford doing a line of John Lennon glasses. They look exactly like John Lennon's glasses. You just mentioned 
K-pop sensation BTS wearing suits that are by Tom Brown, a designer today, but they are absolute replicas of a Beatles tailored suit circa 63 with a little bit of the velvet collar, you know, and also made of shark skin. So you get this kind of like imitation beetle looks. But somebody like Anna Sui is a woman's wear designer. She's not doing Beatles garments and mimicking them for her clientele. She is more deriving from the Beatles an attitude and an approach to dressing to express yourself. And I think that that is what endures greatly from the Beatles as fashion influencers. I could, again, identify elements that are probably in your closet from acid wash jeans, George Harrison, you know, (laughs) and help, he jumpstarts that, to the Beatle boots that I actually have a pair now in white with a bit of a platform, but it's harkening back to that. The corduroy we talked about and men today with their hair, you know, that that was kind of opened up by the Beatles. So those are all particular things that we could identify as Beatle-esque. But what is the greater influence, I think, is that they gave the culture permission, as Gene Simmons says in the book, to be different, to dress, to be different. And you could say that whole 60s mantra of do your own thing. You know, the Beatles definitely walked that talk. (laughs) They manifested it in every aspect of what they did as musicians and as people at large at the top of the culture. And I think that that is what inspires people is that you can dress to express yourself. You can dress to be an individual. You can experiment with garments to create a sense of style that is uniquely your own. And I think that that's what the Beatles in a large part represent for fashion today. I think that's great. I think they do. Now, one last question for you. Do you have a favorite Beatles fashion era? I've been asked this question before, I will confess. (laughs) (laughs) I do have one I like a lot uh, that get weak in the knees, I must say. And it is when it's an image more. It's an image, but it would be that era. It's when the Beatles get the MBE from their queen, Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. And it's the photo shoot just right afterwards and they're showing their medals. It's the combination of the hair is longer than it's been. It's a little wild. They all have these almost sarcastic, almost bordering on a supercilious look on their faces. Then just below the neck, they have the most impeccable, tailored, bespoke, creations in the most luxurious fabrics. I can see from the images, they're also wearing beetle boots, but it's, this is what gets me is that you have this kind of sexiness in that whole look because it's these tensions. There's this rebellious hair, this arrogance, 
that's coming coming right out of the pores. And then it's kind of held in check by the most established of British tailoring traditions. And I just find that really erotic, actually, like this tension between the right and the wrong. <laughs> and, and so I really, really dig that. And they're also uh, reportedly pretty stoned. So well, they that. say that that that's <laughs> been um, yeah, that's let's say controversial because I think yes. John said it, but then George has denied it. So who knows? But yes, right. possibly. I was possibly. actually yes. looking at that picture yesterday. I used a picture from that shoot for a, a thumbnail for something else, and now I have to go back and revisit it with <laughs> everything that you just said. I quite like that one. I've, I've said it to some, I think my publisher, because I said, I really wanted the baby. He goes, really? He didn't think they look sexy at all. But anyway, so that's my rationale. But I also really love the period that would be called the anti-fashion Beatles, which I think is getting into what you were referring to more demure look, you know, the get back era, um, late 68, 69 time. I just love it that they just mix and match and they do it in such an inimitable way and uh, they do it their way. And it's so fresh, right? Like if you look at a Beatle picture from 69, it's like that didn't date at all. Right. Mm. Whereas of course you right. look at them in the colorless suits. Yeah. That's, that's an era. That's a time. Whereas look how uh, like uh, it's so timeless what they've created in the late uh, stage of their career as Beatles, right? And that I think is the epitome of style. Style endures. Style has no time limit to it. It is forever. <laughs> and I love that part of them too. Ringo especially, he was a winner in that time period. He looked Absolutely. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so where can listeners find you online? And I think you'll be at the Fest for Beatles fans sometime soon, a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. So isn't that so exciting? Thank you for mentioning it. I've been invited. I've never been before. I um, have logged on, you know, during the lockdowns, I was able to get the virtual pass. So I'm no stranger to it, of course. I'm so excited. Yes, I'm going to be there. And I think your listeners would know about this already that the dates are significant, yes. February 9 to 11, coinciding precisely with the world premiere of the Beatles on um, this side of the pond, on the Ed Sullivan show, February 9, 64. So here we are going to be February 9, 2024. And get this, the fest is taking place in and around JFK Airport, where they Touchdown. We have all those incredible photos from that time, that most exciting period of, of seeing them for the first time. And it's going to be at the TWA Hotel, which is so Jetson-esque. <laughs> that place is insane. I've not been before. I just couldn't believe it. I was feasting my eyes. So yeah, I'm super psyched to do that and meet all these Beatles people. Jenny Boyd will be there speaking of the Apple Boutique. She worked at the Apple Boutique. I was kind of thinking, right. oh, I've got to, I've got to tape that. I'm going to say, so tell me everything <laughs> um, from what you remember. And um, in terms of where to find me, yes, I'm on Instagram. Now, people might not believe this, but my name, Deirdre Kelly, is very common Irish name. And so um, on Instagram, I was lucky just to get Kelly Deirdre. <laughs> so that's how you find me. You have to reverse it. 
I am on X as uh, Deirdre underscore Kelly. Again, another Deirdre Kelly beat me to it. But I do have the domain name DeirdreKelly.com. And um, so there is a website and uh, it is currently under construction, but there is a front page, which is giving you a lot of information about the book, about appearances for the book. And I try to keep it up to date with the most beautiful, generous coverage that I've been able to receive for this book. So I, I provide links and, and some images where possible. So again, thank you for asking me and you will soon be on that, I'm sure. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much. Again, this has been so much fun. We could talk about the fashion forever, but we really appreciate you taking the time and coming on the podcast. Yeah, for well, sure. Thank you. You asked incredibly insightful questions and um, I love that you honed in a lot more on the fashion. So that is great. Thanks again. Pleasure is all mine, really. Yes, thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Well, that was amazing. That was such a great time talking to Deirdre. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please check out her links that she mentioned where you can find her online. And as always from us, thanks again for listening to BC The Beatles. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you're listening right now. And give us a review and a rating so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.